What's up, Main Streeters? This is the Main Street Insiders podcast, where we discuss personal finance, economics, and investing for the America First crowd. Together, we can learn to live more, spend less, and own our future. Let's roll. What's up, Main Streeters? This is Luke Perlott. And this is Jeff Perlott. Today, we'll hear my interview with Elaine Pofelt. Elaine is an independent journalist who specializes in small business, entrepreneurship, and careers. She is the author of The Million Dollar One Person Business and Tiny Business, Big Money. Her work has appeared in Fortune, Money, CNBC, Inc., and Forbes, and she was also featured multiple times on the Tim Ferriss podcast. Elaine shares stories and strategies of micro-businesses that generate high revenues with little or no staff. These aren't the glamorous tech startups that make the news They are solo product inventors, small agencies and consulting firms, regional wholesalers, and other salt-of-the-earth entrepreneurs. They're often companies you've never heard of that work behind the scenes to support or supply the big companies that you have heard of, and really they're the engine that drives our economy. In many ways, small business owners are the ultimate embodiment of what makes America great. Starting your own business takes courage, creativity, and hustle. Elaine is one of America's leading voices in support of entrepreneurship, and we owe her a debt of gratitude for sharing these stories. Elaine also does us a great service by profiling these businesses and then compiling the key strategies for creating a high-revenue micro-business yourself. These books are a crucial cheat sheet for anyone interested in a business of their own. Elaine also explains how small businesses are an asset that can secure your financial future and give you the lifestyle you want. Again, it keeps coming back to freedom and owning your future. We often think of small businesses in terms of the income they can generate now, but they can also become assets that can be built and sold down the road. So before we dive in, I want to let everyone know that you can head to Main Street Inside insiders.com to get access to our articles on the top four America first economic principles. We believe these are the key to creating a vibrant and healthy economy for everyone. So on that note, here's my interview with Elaine Pofeld. You know, there's so many things you could write about. You could write about tech startups. You could write about CEOs of big public companies. You could write about, you know, companies that are scaling up to hundred million, like Vern Harnish talks about, but you chose micro business entrepreneurs. And I was just wondering kind of what draws you to this group and, and what makes them special in your eyes? I think they're the most exciting, unexplored group of business owners in America and in the world. They make up the majority of all businesses and They are barely covered at all in the mainstream media. And I think it's because there's always been a bias toward job creating startups and scale ups, which are very important. I love all businesses, but this group of businesses doesn't get enough love. And these are the businesses that either are the great boutique businesses that serve us in our communities, or they're the businesses that have a future as maybe a 10 person business or a 20 person business, 50 person, et cetera. We don't really know. It's kind of like uh, when you start a family, right? Like you think, oh, maybe I'd like to have one kid. I ended up with four, right? But you won't know until you start really what the natural size of a business is the same way as, as a family. 
What are some of the traits that you see in common from these entrepreneurs in both of your books? You know, the first book was about one person, million dollar businesses, and this book's about tiny businesses, but that, you know, where you could have employees or contractors and maybe up to 10 or 20 people. But what are some of the common traits for all of those different types of businesses that you see? One thing I love about all of them is they're very independent thinkers. They want to build life their own way live life according to their own rules, yet they're not hermits. They're part of society. And a lot of them know each other. That's one really interesting thing. You and I were riffing right before we got on about all the mutual connections we have. And that's how the entrepreneurial world is. I think a lot of them are committed to their well-being as well. Sometimes the corporate lifestyle is not as healthy as we would like. Commuting can take away a lot of time that maybe we could be exercising or even socializing, which is good for our overall well-being. And um, one thing that I found was 88% of the owners in my new book, Tiny Business, Big Money, are exercisers. And their number one exercise is yoga. I don't think that's an accident because I've seen other research showing that people feel it's healthier to work for yourself. And I think in this time that we're in right now, a lot of people have re-examined their life and said, is this how I want to be living my life? Am I living my best life? And they have decided that their best life is in starting a business where they can be themselves, sell something that they're um, using to really bring value to other people and live according to what they believe in. So I did want to read a quote from your book too. It said, this was post-pandemic. You said, seeing people milling around outside, eager to see each other again, was a reminder of how important each small business is to the fabric of our communities and how much they are a part of the glue that holds us together. Can you talk a little bit about just the value of small businesses to just society? I think we're all much more aware of that now Uh, than ever before, because so many of our favorite destinations closed, even bigger businesses in my community, the Barnes and Noble just closed. And I remembered when Barnes and Noble was the bad guy putting the little bookstores out of business. Now we're saying, oh, it's Amazon putting Barnes and Noble out of business. But these places are destinations where you have those collisions. Employers talk about water cooler collisions and how people exchange ideas in those informal meetings. It's the same thing. When you chat with somebody who um, is selling you coffee or the bookstore clerk or somebody um, who's fixing your car, whatever it is, you're connecting with another human being and you never know where those conversations will lead. And they really do bring us together. Sometimes they give us a reason to get out of the house. We could be lost in our own thoughts in our own heads all day. And that's not so good sometimes, right? (laughs) Mm-hmm. So it, it brings us back into community. So you, uh, in both books, you studied entrepreneurs, some smaller businesses, some larger. Did you notice them being more, like when they get started, did they tend to more spot some kind of gap in the market? And they're like, oh, I should quit my job and fill that gap. Or, or are people usually more motivated by trying to improve their personal lifestyle? I think with the businesses I focus on, most of them are motivated by a desire for personal lifestyle change, but they are driven by a desire to achieve excellence too. These are folks that really want to do their best work. When we're talking about million dollar one person businesses, for instance, there are less than 1% of solo businesses that make it to that level. So these are the Olympic athletes who we can all learn from. And so they're looking for a way to bring the best of maybe what they did in corporate life to a more individual or boutique level. Um, 
And that's a big driver too. Sometimes they can't do what they want creatively or professionally in a bigger setting because of all the constraints that come with trying to turn a battleship. Um, And other times they're so quirky in terms of their thinking or ideas, there just wouldn't be a home in a big organization, but they know that they're right. And they they have the um, willingness to bet on their own ideas. So I think it's a combination of factors, but right now uh, I think SCORE said 5 million people registered new businesses in 2021. I think a lot of those people are motivated by lifestyle change um, and, you know, wanting to spend time with children while they're still in the house, uh, wanting to just enjoy nature and more things like that, that maybe we forgot about a little bit before the pandemic, but when they were taken away, all of a sudden we realized, wow, these things are really important to me enough to put a stake in the ground and, and go after them. So, and just so people don't get too intimidated by the million dollar number, people didn't reach that instantly. On average, how long did it take for these businesses that you're profiling to reach a million? I, well, I didn't check in the million dollar one person business, but I did a survey of 50 businesses in tiny business, big money. Now, these are businesses with small teams. So some had groups of contractors, some had anywhere between one and 20 employees. But to get to one million, it took them on average four years And four years was the mark where on average, they hired their first employee. This could be great fodder. If anyone is listening, who's part of an entrepreneurship program where you have research money to look into why the four-year mark is so important. This is a 50-person study done uh, with a very informal survey methodology. So someone could do it much more um, high-tech than I did. But I think that's significant. And I think it would be worth looking into what happens at that point. There are people that are 10 or 12 year overnight success stories. And by the way, I don't feel that everybody needs to get to 1 million. Sometimes people apologize to me and say, I'm making 700,000, you know, (laughs) they think I'm going to be mad at them. I I think it's fantastic. If you need to make $60,000 to live your dream life, and that's the maximum, then you're living the equivalent of the million dollar one person business. It's not really a number, it's getting to your number. And I know that you focus, Jeff, on personal finance too. And it's part of a personal finance equation where sometimes working more will cost you more in terms of needing a whole support team to do all the things you're not doing. So you might find, I wanna cap it at this level or you might go a little bit beyond your comfort level and say, hey, you know, I'm living in a world of pain if I make $500,000 a year. So I'm going to scale back and keep it at 300000 It's really what's right for you. And some people will say, I'll never be satisfied until I conquer the world and I have to have 100 or more employees. And, and, and I appreciate them too, because we need them all. Those are the future companies that are going to hire these little one-person businesses as creatives or, uh, you know, e-commerce consultants or whatever they provide. So we need the whole ecosystem. So let's talk a little bit more about that too, because because people do think, oh, I, I have to have this huge revenue and huge profits to, to take care of my life. But, you know, you had one uh, entrepreneur who said, I wanted to create something of value that is a cash flow generating asset. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about Small businesses in Ashet, you mentioned multiple owners who sold previous businesses who plan to sell their existing businesses. I sold a business using Quiet Light Brokerage, which you mentioned in the book. I think a lot of times people think only in terms of that income that's going to allow them to leave their day job and not realizing that that cash flow is an asset that they can sell at a multiple. How should 
entrepreneurs as they're getting started, and this is mentioned kind of a bit in in a book called The E-Myth, how should they think as they're getting started? Like, yeah, I mean, how do I build this in a way that it could potentially be sellable and be an asset, just like a house that you lived in for 10 years is an asset? I think this is a trend that's only going to grow. So I'm glad you you brought this up. Um, What's happened since 2018 that's driving it in part is that Amazon changed a rule that said that people can only own one e-commerce store on Amazon. And what started happening was investors got interested in a, a trend called aggregation, where they buy more than one of these stores and put them under one roof, either virtually or physically. And they manage certain parts of the back office, maybe the marketing, or they do the QuickBooks for all of them. And sometimes they keep on the original entrepreneur as an employee. They have a deal when when they Um, purchase the business where the entrepreneur has to have some skin in the game and gets paid a little bit more later to make sure that it's really performs the way he or she said it would. And what happened when I was updating the million dollar one person business, I updated it in 2021 was a number of them had sold. And then in tiny business, in the short time that I was working on it, some of them sold because of this trend. There's a, um, a unicorn company called Thrasio, which you might have seen in the headlines that raised a lot of money to acquire these businesses. And they got everybody else on the bandwagon because they were being very successful with this whole method. And then a lot of other investors who had, it's called dry powder, it's money they're not using, came on board. And now there's this giant list. There's a publication called Hanbeck that has a list of all the different aggregators. So now these folks have an opportunity to sell what they built And I think this trend could actually move into some of the other industries besides e-commerce. It basically depends on having a business model where someone else can step into the business if you are not there. And that means putting the systems and processes in place for your industry. Um, It might mean before you sell, putting an employee in place to prove that someone else can run it and you stepping aside for the most part. So people can see that it, it doesn't have to be you running it for the business to be that successful. That's a very good way to think if you're trying to build wealth, because a lot of times people are starting these businesses because they're sick of their boss. They hate their job. They hate their commute. They're kind of moving away from something they don't like. And then they're so happy to be in a business doing what they love without all the hassles that they left behind. But if you take that other leap and say, how do I make this into an asset that someone else can buy? I mean, it might just be that you sell your customer list. A lot of um, accountants do that. Um, But think about the parts of your business that might be valuable to someone else that don't depend on your unique knowledge and creative talent and personality. And that's where you can find the sellable parts of your business. It might be the whole thing or it might be just part of it. So on that note, you know, you mentioned many people in both books that were inspired by Tim Ferriss, uh, Four Hour Work Week. I was inspired by Tim Ferriss, Four Hour Work Week. That's why I started my business. But the reality is, and you describe it very transparently, the reality is that Four Hour Work Week is typically nowhere to be found. I know, like you, you, you profile one business, the MACD advisor guy, who was like, "I'm building it as a system from the get go," but most people kind of aren't doing that. Can you talk about that evolution? And you've you've alluded to it. A, already, but like how, what should people expect in that first year, that first two years when they're getting this thing off the ground, they might've been inspired by the idea of a four hour work week. That's not usually what typically happens. It seems like it's usually a process. 
it takes a while, I think, to cut down the hours because in the beginning, you're learning how to run it and how to run it best. I think to get to the minimum number of hours you have to work, you do have to step back a little. And this is one of the differences between the entrepreneurs who scale and the people that stay in the boutique businesses. It's almost um, as if to scale, you've got to take people out of the equation, out of your mind, and think more in terms of, of the sort of framework of the business. And you have to do that, I think, to remove yourself from the business too. So you, it's stepping back and saying, what could I automate here? You know, what am I spending my time on? Is it really worth me emailing back and forth to set up that appointment? And I usually suggest that people try to save one day a week. It's not that hard to get there through automation and outsourcing. Um, like for instance, in my business, it's a writing business. I use um, an accounting company called Bench, but there's a lot of other competitors. And I just send in a lot of documents to them. I don't even have to do QuickBooks anymore. And you, they use AI and then they have a, a bookkeeper handling part of it. So if I need to speak with the bookkeeper, I can, but I don't have to. And that saves me an enormous amount of time because believe it or not, in a writing business, there's a lot of bookkeeping, um, keeping track of everything. So if you think of you know, your scheduling app, Calendly or Schedule Once or one of the other ones, that or Doodle, you know, that that will save you a lot of time. If you um, in, in the book, I have some lists of the apps that people use, and they're not going to be right for every business. You kind of take what you like and leave the rest. Um, but the, if you keep your mind open to these things and allow time for setup, that's the other part is if you don't set them up, they don't work, right? <laughs> so you have to book time in your schedule, like maybe a half an hour to learn how Doodle really works or an hour. So you can start incorporating, then you'll really save time and you'll be focused much more on the high value tasks. Usually the ones that are high value are things like meeting clients, deepening your relationship even letting a call run over for 15 minutes where you're really getting to know a client or a colleague, you never know where those relationships will lead. I consider that one of the highest value tasks because there's no substitute and there's nothing that makes business quicker than trust and having a great relationship with someone where you can just shoot off a text that's two words long and you're on the phone. That speeds business and that reduces the amount of time you have to spend cold calling pitching, things that yeah. really take a lot of time and cause stress. Speaking of high value, and we only have time for a couple more quick questions. You talk a bit about the value of premium pricing, which is like, which is a huge thing. Mark Andreessen was on Tim Ferriss show and Tim Ferriss always asks, if you could put a billboard anywhere, what would it say? And um, he said, raise prices. And that's always been a big thing for me, even in teaching students and, and consulting clients is just like, raise your prices. I'm thinking of Dana Derricks, who you profile in the book. Just talk about that whole idea of you kind of have to pick one, high volume or high margins. He's a goat farmer in Wisconsin. He has like a recreational goat farm. And he's also a copywriter. And in his copywriting business, he found that he often needed to teach his clients certain things. So he started writing these books and selling them. He calls them high ticket books for premium prices. His first experiment was with a $400 book based on the value he felt they got from the book. And then he went to $1,000. And then I think it was $1,500 and $2,000. And as he got higher, he got uh, fewer sales, but it showed him that um, the pricing of books didn't always correspond to the value they provided. And if he could 
exceed the value of the average book, then people would willingly pay it. He was almost thinking of these books almost as a course, I would say. And so re-examining all the notions in your own industry might open the door to charging more, but there's no substitute for being really good at what you do. He's a really good copywriter. And that's what I found with all of these folks. There's a business plan writer in there, um, somebody who does engineering design. You have to take the time to become proficient. And sometimes, especially when I speak with young entrepreneurs, they're so eager to prove themselves and get to 1 million. But if you get to 1 million and you're not offering a quality product or service, you might've gotten there on hustle and energy and enthusiasm. And I appreciate all those qualities, but the foundation of really being a career entrepreneur who can keep doing this is getting really, really good at what you do. Like Elon Musk, right? When you think about him, I'm sure he totally geeks out on everything that he gets involved in. You know it by his tweets and everything else. You have to find things that you want to geek out about, and they might not be the same things that other people are interested in. It doesn't matter. It matters that you become really knowledgeable and really good at them. Well, thank you so much. That's all so helpful. There's so much more we could talk about, but we have to wrap it up for now. Um, where can people find you online? They can find me on LinkedIn. Twitter and Facebook under my full name, Elaine Pofelt, which is probably in the show notes. And I'm on um, Instagram at the million dollar one person business. Please write to me. I am a journalist and I love hearing from people. It makes me a better journalist um, you know, to know what you're thinking about. So thank you. And thank you so much, Jeff, for what you do to help people live a more independent lifestyle and one where they have sanity and peace and enjoyment of what they do every day. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's how it went down. A few takeaways from the interview and from Elaine's books. One, successful entrepreneurs tend to be dedicated to total health. Almost 90% of the entrepreneurs Elaine profiled in her book exercise, and 64% have some sort of mindfulness or spiritual practice. As we often say, we want Main Streeters to be strong in mind, body, and spirit. And Elaine's examples prove the benefits of that. Two, financial freedom is a jumping off point to other types of freedom. Instead of only thinking about the income a business could provide, think about how a business can provide time and location freedom that lets you pursue the lifestyle you want. Three, COVID showed us how important small businesses are to our communities. When small businesses were shut down, we saw how it separated and isolated us. But when they started opening back up, you could feel the buzz of our communities coming back alive. A world dominated by Amazon, Walmart, Starbucks, and the shopping mall is a cold, lifeless world. But a world dominated by small businesses is a colorful, diverse, and vibrant world. Let's pick that world. For some additional thoughts on entrepreneurship, check out our article, Why Would Anyone Start a Small Business? You can find it at MainStreetInsiders.com slash newsletter. So wrapping up, thanks again to Elaine for highlighting these often invisible or underestimated businesses and the value they bring to our lives. Let's continue to celebrate America's entrepreneurial spirit. This is the way. This is the way. Thanks for joining us on Main Street Insiders. It would mean a lot to us if you subscribe and share this podcast so that more Main Streeters can discover how to live more, spend less, and own their future. Visit MainStreetInsiders.com to receive our free weekly newsletter, get show notes, and download our guide to the top four principles of a healthy and vibrant America First economy. 
Until next time, God bless and God bless America.